Welcome to the podcast, Risk is the New Kale. Each episode, I talk with folks who have figured out how to extract opportunity from risk. As someone who has spent a career controlling risk, I want to know those who embrace it. Risk is the new kale. Good for you. Hard to take. Dr. Adjung Moon is remarkable. She chose a field of study that quite simply no one was looking at at the time. This podcast examines the issues of potential conflicts between humans and machines from an expert in responsible design of robots and artificial intelligence. Adjung and I first met when she launched a consulting company called the Open Robotics Institute in order to offer ethics reviews of organizations' deployment of AI. To say that she opened my eyes is an understatement, and to this day, the work that she and her team did instilled the language of AI ethics into that particular organization's DNA. Okay, here we go. She's an experimental roboticist specializing in ethics and responsible design of interactive robots and autonomous intelligence systems. A professor at the University of McGill, she founded the Open Robotics Institute, and she has advised the UN Secretary General's high-level panel on digital cooperation, as well as the Government of Canada's Council on Artificial Intelligence. Welcome to Dr. Adjung Moon. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you. Okay, Adjung, what is a roboethicist? This is a job title that really didn't exist five years ago. Yeah, I think I, I just made my own job title. <laughs> and I think that roboethicist is still a, a term in making. Um, Roboethicist essentially means people, people like myself, who may be roboticists, really looking into ethics and trying to understand the ethical implications of the things that we build, and try to bring it up a notch. So you know, uh, consider the ethical implications during the design phase. Um, and there are also roboethicists, or people who I would qualify as roboethicists, who are actually um, studying the ethical implications on the whole of robotics, generally speaking, even you know, even if they may not be designing the robots uh, themselves. Yeah. I love that you believe technology is a superpower for humans. So, what is the role of autonomous systems in society? You're asking a very tricky question here because I, I think, I think technology is still. I, I still believe that technology is a superpower because I think we can do so many interesting and powerful things using technologies that we we were ne- never able to do so before. Um, and at the same time, <laughs> we are, we're in this era where we can start to think about machines that are autonomous and intelligent, and they can do massively scalable things for us. So if I were to say um, uh, technology, broadly speaking, is a superpower for humans, I would say autonomous systems are like superpower plus plus. It allows us to do things much faster, much more in in mass, um, in ways that we we never envisioned before. Um, But in terms of the role of autonomous systems in our society, I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out because I don't think we have a very close-ended answer on that question. 
Well, that I think that bounces to the next question I have for you, which is um, society's perception of risk associated with robotics and autonomous systems. There's sort of this um, perception maybe that's maybe quite different from the reality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, when we when we talk about risk and robots, I think traditionally we were thinking about, ooh, robots, uh, working around robots can be dangerous. We want to separate robots out from humans because what if robots end up punching you? Ah, that's a physical risk. And that's something we can really wrap our he- heads around and put some barriers on top. But then there's also the, the sci-fi notion of risk with respect to robots, which is things like Terminators. <laughs> we might have these great robots that we trust and we have all over the world and um, maybe all of a sudden they will just turn on us and that's how things will go bad. Uh, but I think the, the kind of risks that I study is really more about the risk that come from the interaction between humans and robots coexisting in a space. <laughs> um, and it's not necessarily like a Terminator that will that is out to get you, um, but it's really more about uh, how much of um, faulty things will we end up believing because a robot is telling telling us this particular information. So really changing almost the way that we interact with our world and much less about a physical safety. It's more kind of shifting societal behavior in a way is what you're looking at. Yeah, I think there's a lot that I'm discovering about human behavior. Uh, Some of our our, um, psychological effects or or our behaviors can be predicted um, because a a great example could be a robot that moves super fast as though it's punching you. It's just about to punch you, (laughs) but it's programmed not to punch you. It'll, It'll stop, you know, a few millimeters in front of your face. You, you probably will respond without even thinking about it by blinking, maybe ducking, maybe shying away uh, and having this fear response where your, um, your palms will get sweaty and, and your heart rate will go up. Those are things that we probably won't be able to control. These are bodily reactions that are built into us. But by programming the robot to move in such a way, I can now mm. predictively elicit that response in you. Ha! Isn't that powerful? <laughs> yes, that's so interesting. That's, um, in a way, kind of the, the managing the ethical and moral responsibility not to elicit a response that is um, is not something that we wish to respond with, but it's actually tapping into kind of the, just as you say, the physiological response that's automated because of the nature of us being human beings. That's really interesting. Yeah, part of it could be also um, also purely psychological as well. Um, one really interesting study um, done in 2018 um, by Robin et al. Uh, they they were really interested in this effect of overtrust. Will people trust robots in such a dangerous levels that we need to to start to worry about it? And so they created this experiment where they introduce these people to a, a robot that they are working on. They said, oh, it has this kind of little flag on it. Um, we're trying to design it so that it can guide you towards a fire exit if there is any a case of fire in the building. 
By the way, the, just in case there is fire during the experiment, the exit is this way, and they would, you know, give them all the safety orientation. And they said because the robot is is still a prototype, it's faulty, it's not going to direct you in the right direction. So don't follow the robot. And you know, lo and behold, they they fake triggered this fire uh, alarm, uh, and they watched people uh, whether they follow the robot towards a uh, supposed exit or they go towards the exit they have been told is the right exit. And they saw that majority of the participants actually follow the robot towards a dead end. <laughs> really? And that's the was kind it a of... humanoid robot? Do you think no. that had something to do with it? No, it was just that was a, an instruction that they had in the immediacy, so they followed it. Exactly. It, it, it doesn't look humanoid at all. It's, it's literally like a, a boxy cylindrical thing that moves uh, with things sticking out of it. Nothing, nothing too sophisticated, right? Um, so you would think, like, you, why, why would humans do this? <laughs> this, is, this is not the kind of risk that we, we, um, we have in mind when we build these. <laughs> and now we're starting to think about this interactive behaviors that are really quirky when we put robots in the room. <laughs> would you describe that level of interaction as a conflict between humans and machines? Um, yeah, I, I think we can think about it as a form of conflict, but a, a form of conflict that we have yet to uh, uncover. Because when we talk about conflicts, I think we, we envision this direct kind of head-to-head -head kind of conflict. Um, but in, in this particular scenario about the experiment with over-trusting of robots, um, the robots don't really have intentions. They're just machines. <laughs> they're just programmed to do whatever they're programmed to do. And many times they will fail as well. Um, in that sense, we can't really frame things going wrong from this interaction as though it is really about human-human conflict, headbutting of differences, opinions, or intentions, or desires. Uh, because in a way, a lot of it is very one-sided. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yes. Yes, we have a lot of accountability in that as the human. Yeah, uh, as a user, especially with the, the punching robot example that I gave you, um, what, how, how much of that interaction would I say is about accountability? How much of my physiological response, the threat response, would I say is part of my control? And how mm. much of things that I can't control about myself can I say is something I can be accountable for? <laughs> These are open-ended questions, yeah. Well, where do you place the accountability of the designer and the programmer of the robot then in that interaction? Do they hold the majority of the, the ethical accountability? Right now, no. I would say this is a very contentious topic, a very open-ended um, issue right now, especially when it comes to you know self-driving cars and some of the accidents that, that we have seen. Uh, we're really looking at the limitation between um, what humans can do um, and what robots are very good at. Uh, and, and we have situations where we are getting people to monitor these systems that um, majority of the times they work perfectly fine, but humans are there to catch that 10% that of the time or 5% of the, the failure modes. Uh, but if the system has been working fine for the majority of the times, you're not going to pay attention to this. Uh, you're going to be complacent about it. Automation complacency is a, a behavior that we understand very well uh, in human-machine interaction. 
And yet, with the kind of systems that we are seeing uh, with human testers, we actually hold the human testers or users accountable for things going right if they're actually not paying attention to the road and so on and so forth. Although we we are really hitting the limit of of human cognition at that point. Um, And I would say that this particular contentious topic is there because our legal system that protects us from certain types of risks that we know about in interacting with other humans don't really apply well when we start to look at these machines um, that do a lot of interesting superpower stuff, but also (laughs) pose a lot of new uncertainties for us as well. Um, As we interact with robots, as we interact with artificial intelligence systems, as we're sort of blending the environment So law has to expand, and I just so appreciate this underpinning that you're bringing around the ethics side of it. I I think it's important for people to also understand uh, your uh, your definition and the difference between robotics versus artificial intelligence. Perhaps you can sort of ground us a bit in some some definition. Sure. Um, So. I I define robots to be these uh, systems that have a body, (laughs) Uh, that that have physical, tangible things you can touch, Um, whereas AI doesn't need a body to be artificially intelligent. (laughs) So in a way, I, I say that not all AI needs a physical body, all robots have a body, and not all robots need AI to operate. Okay, okay. So, for example, I, I think a, a great example is one of my colleagues, Professor Audrey Sedal, also at McGill. Um, she's an expert in soft robotics. And soft robots are these systems made of these composite or stretchy material um, that are uh, that you can even actuate it with a bike pump, essentially, <laughs> so that they change shapes and they're soft and they can you know, uh, move in, in ways that are useful for us. But they, they don't need any kind of intelligence in the background to operate. And perhaps another example of a robot that doesn't have AI would be uh, robots that I've seen when I was an intern at an automotive factory many, many years ago. <laughs> um, the, these companies have gigantic robots that paint the chassis of a car as they come down the, uh, the conveyor belts. And these systems can be programmed to repeat the same task over and over again. The next car will be blue, the next car will be red. You don't need to supervise all of that. That's all programmed in there. But nothing about it is artificially intelligent in that sense. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's a continuum, I think, is how you're describing it. And as we're now in the 22nd century, my perception of robots is that most have some kind of intelligent kind of um, analysis of what's going on around them. But I think you've cleared up that there can be many types of autonomous systems that are just simply doing the same tasks over and over again, like a piece of machinery in the 1700s, as an example. Okay, um, I'm curious about your stories here around how do robots and AI systems influence us? Because you study how these systems change us and that they influence how we as humans move and behave and make decisions. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a, a, a background story around your experimentation and your research there? Sure, I can try and scratch the surface, <laughs> at least. 
Robots and, and AI, as we, we briefly discussed, are, are kind of two different beasts that work well together. I think of robots as these physical things that can be powerful influencers of our behaviors because they have the body. And they move around in such a physically salient, immediate uh, ways. Whereas AI, the, the kind of AI that we, we think of, um, the software that, that's running on our phones, um, software behind Google Maps or you know, uh, any apps that you use to, to drive around, find the best routes from point A to point B. Uh, all of those systems, I would say, are systems that influence us uh, in powerful ways because they're so invisible. They can be so invisible. Uh, the part that I'm really fascinated by is the fact that uh, even, even the, the youngest of babies, uh, three months, six months old, you show them things moving around. You tell them stories of the circle that is triangle. And then uh, after a little while, you, you give them choices of, you know, the circle toy or the triangle toy. And then the babies will definitely prefer the good <laughs> triangle over the circle. And that inherent um, perception we have between mapping of motions to something that is good, something that will protect us, something that will allow us to be happy, I think that translates to how we see robots and the way they move. Robots, in a way, have the capacity to be programmed to lead us to be very anxious, feel unsafe, or really feel comforted. <laughs> is that a deliberate choice of programmers, or is it something that not all designers of systems actually think about and are intentional about at the start of whatever they're creating? I believe it's more of the latter than the former, that we're just starting to really understand uh, the full effects of robots and their emotions and, and even verbal behaviors around us. Uh, yet we are developing these systems without having had this full understanding of them, because roboticists tend to share this where robots will be in our homes, they'll be doing our chores, they won't get in the, in the way, they won't interrupt us when we're busy doing things. They'll be all this very intelligent and, and amazing things. Uh, but just the question of what does that mean for us to even have a robot in the home? What does that do for our perception of privacy, of being in my bedroom and all of a sudden there is a robot? I think that's the kind of question we're starting to address that we don't have full answers for. Um, so in, in a way, we're kind of parallel tracking between designing of these robots that could be really cool <laughs> and understanding the implications of it at the same time. It's yeah. a fascinating emerging field. And as you're, as you're describing it, it's helping me understand kind of where experts like you are thinking and, and actually leading us to be questioning how are we going to feel and react in the same way that I have um, a, an intelligent speaker on my desk and every now and then I think you know what I'm about to have a conversation I don't actually want that on I'm going to unplug it 
but I don't always think about that. And now I'm actually quite comfortable with it sitting there. It's just a little Alexa speaker and, but it, that's taken some time, but it's funny how quickly that integrated into just sort of the, the day-to-day in the household. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And, and even understanding the longitudinal effect is something that we are starting to do more and more, especially in the domain of human-robot interaction. We put on our you know, uh, scientist hats on and do this control experiments. Half an hour, come in and work with the, the robots for us. Um, but we're also seeing that when you give people these robots to hang out with for many, many weeks down the road, um, some people may develop a strong emotional attachment to them. Some people might not even bother with them after a couple of weeks. And some people are kind of in between. <laughs> so um, we, have, we have yet to understand or uh, unpack uh, the nature of, of these relationships, I would say. Yeah. So you were describing domestic robots, but uh, of course there's industrial robots, transportation robots, and military and security robots. In what ways are there similar risks associated with them, and in what ways would you describe some extreme differences? Mm-hmm. I like to think about risks deployed in different applications separately. When we talk about domestic robots, I believe we have the capacity to think about the scalability. We will likely be mass manufacturing them. Uh, we will want to think about maintenance of them, updates to the software that end up being massive manipulation engines for, for all the users. <laughs> um, whereas if we start to think about robots as weapons uh, that can be that can make targeting or triggering decisions autonomously, then we're not only talking about the ethical implications of doing that or the physical harm of the people on the other side of the the weapon, but we are also talking about the political risks and implications of that as well. So the the scale and and the spectrum of risks are, I think, quite different. Uh, But again, maybe the similarity across across the board is really about the fact that risks with respect to robots, are really sociotechnological risks. <laughs> we can't, we can't, um, we can't stop our discussions about risks in the traditional sense that says, ah, there is, I don't know, two uh, percent probability of failure, or um, if the robot were to to um, come into a physical contact, then likelihood of you losing your eye is X. And I, I think. Um, our, our days of just talking about safety uh, or traditional sense of risk is, is kind of over in terms of robots, in part because they're now sharing our physical world with us outside of these boundaries. So the boundary is more porous, but the opportunity is greater. Right. That's, that's why they're adjacent to us. So um, such a fascinating thing in that spectrum of difference all the way to the politics of deploying autonomous weaponry. You were on a UN committee that looked at the use of robotics in weaponry and warfare. Do you believe that as a sort of global geopolitical discussion that the right conversations are happening there? 
you have confidence that the right people are in the room? So the UN Convention on Conventional Weapons is the the um, international fora where we're having the killer robots discussion, whether to ban such a system or whether to have a treaty. And if, if we have a treaty, what would that look like? But I would say I, I'm hopeful about the fact that we're having the conversation because it is a it is an international convention under the umbrella of the UN community. Uh, the the pace at which this conversation is happening is much slower than me sharing a Google Doc and co-drafting something with you. <laughs> so it's a multi-year process. Uh, and as technologists, I, I think uh, a lot of us share the perspective that this is way too slow. We have a lot of the members of the community who support a ban or who support some sort of a regulatory framework uh, for for uh, against this kind of um, uh, advancement of military technologies, uh, and we need action now. <laughs> I think we're being a little bit impatient there as well. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is to to marry the necessary slowness of these. Um, multi-state dialogue and the necessity of catching up with the pace of the technology. But when I was working as a, um, a senior advisor for a high-level panel uh, of digital cooperation, uh, part of what the panelists were discussing were really about that notion of when we think about digital technologies, what kind of big issues should be should we be cooperating on as an international community? Because even bringing everybody to the, to the same table is a hard task uh, to do. And in a way, I think there is a, a segregation between people who usually go to these UN conventions, uh, people who hang out in the Silicon Valley and talk to the investors. Um, and then there's also people who are leveraging on, on open source um, code base and contributing to, to really critical uh, pieces of software that the whole world relies on, but is not being paid to do any of that work. <laughs> it's completely voluntary. Um, those people don't often meet in the same location, mm -hmm. nor do they have an overlapping community. So I think that's a big problem uh, that would be hard for us to, to solve, but important to solve. In the same way that Agile as a philosophy has kind of permeated from uh, software and tech into the business community, I feel the next place for that to play out is in public policy, so that you trial a new policy and people agree that might not be perfect, but you roll it out. I think GDPR is an example of that, some of that leadership where um, privacy in one part of the global community has just become something that is being tried and it seems to be influencing what's happening in North America. It gives me hope that people like you are involved, I have to say. <laughs> Ajahn, what does it mean to embed human values into predictive data-driven mm. algorithms? Me, embedding human values into predictive systems means understanding what values we share as a community in the first place, having an open conversation about how the, the new technology that we're trying to deploy 
um, interact with those values and making sure that they are aligned. Uh, in, in my past life in the startup world, <laughs> um, I was an AI ethics consultant uh, in, in, um, in part working with you uh, in deploying this kind of process of unpacking stakeholder conversations into a specific set of values. And then thinking through, ooh, how do, how do uh, Joe understand the notion of fairness differently from Joe, for example? I'm just making up names here. <laughs> and why, why does that matter to the design of this piece of software that may impact people's decisions down the line? That process uh, is something that we're still continuing to, to develop. Uh, but it, it's also a very necessary process, I would say, in really starting to understand what does it mean for us to build systems responsibly. <laughs> uh, and I say that because a lot of my students, uh, a lot of the students who are really excited about, about AI and they're going to coding boot camps and so forth, uh, they would like to have these big tech jobs, uh, secure jobs that are highly paid and whatnot. Uh, but they, they may not realize that once you join this community of developers, uh, the big homework, the challenging homework for them is to really have a conversation with their colleagues about what do they care about? Why are they doing it this way? Why is it different from what I believe in? And why is the leadership going in an opposite direction, perhaps? Uh, and being able to reconcile that. And I think that's that's also a very human story of designing technology that we are, again, still uh, in the early stages of uncovering. You opened my eyes because when I, when I thought about the risk of deploying AI, accuracy um, really sort of went to the top of what I thought was one of the most important risks. What if the algorithm was inaccurate and led to poor outcomes? But you, in describing the way that it would be used and the impact on the users and the stakeholders um, and the clients eventually, you helped me understand and we saw that the, the users of the algorithms had a value around transparency and understanding. They really wanted to know why was the algorithm making the decisions that it did. Your work led to a way of daylighting some of the principal parameters that were enabling certain outcomes out of that algorithm. It gave them so much confidence too. I just so appreciate that it, it just, it was like a oh, wow. This is amazing. That's a different framing. <laughs> I'm so glad this is on, on recording, right? <laughs> I can cite you or quote you. In Absolutely, paper. well it shifted the organization. And, and I have to tell you that, so this is you now years later, there was a decision by a client care group to deploy um, uh, sort of autonomous robotic processing. So just basically taking keyboard strokes and um, replicating in a very, very quick way, a way of pulling in a file, examining it, making a decision, and then sending a note back out to a user. But it, say, it was potentially gonna save hundreds of hours of an individual's time not having to do those keystrokes. All of that was just a robotic process. The users, the employees, because the language of an ethics assessment was now part of the history of the company, did their own assessment. Oh. 
and weighed the outcome as to whether this was important work that they would continue to do or whether they were happy to hand it off to robotic process automation. And in the end, they agreed, management was not involved in this, that this was an important efficiency gain and that they were better off working on higher value work as humans. Oh my goodness. So that shifted the culture of the organization such that it took into the culture, we get to examine the application of an autonomous system and we're gonna make a decision. Which is amazing. Like it was I'm getting goosebumps. I, I, I don't know. Say, <laughs> I can't yeah, show you, you over that. the pixels, but you totally did that. <laughs> okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump onto a, a different question. <laughs> what is the way that you personally assess risk? Like how has it changed how you do your work over the years? Ooh. By it, are you referring to something specific or it more broadly about my personal risk management? <laughs> well, I see you as uh, you're an expert. You've made a decision to move across the country and be a prof in a different university. You, um, you certainly put yourself out there going on these UN panels. You have so much confidence. I'm sure you have a ton of PhD students that you're supervising. You are living your life out loud, Adjung, and so you're making risk choices in your career, but also, uh, you know, in many other aspects of your life. And part of the podcast, I think, is just how do people make this decision around positive risk taking because you can see opportunity? Um. Yeah. You. Uh, I'm. I'm pleasantly surprised <laughs> that, that you view me as somebody who, who would take risks in, in the positive kind of way. In part because I don't really consider myself as a risk taker. I, I think I'm hard on myself for, for not taking enough risks. <laughs> um, and in a way, I, I, I kind of uh, have a chat with my, my PhD students as well, saying, well, why are you asking me whether you're, you, you want to apply for this position or not? You should just go for it, <laughs> you know? What, what is the risk? Um, in part because I see that, that element in myself, which is a little bit of self-doubt, uh, weighing pros and cons, and being indecisive about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think something that has helped me in making decisions, whether I am really weighing the risks in, in my personal life or not, uh, is more that I, I have a clearer sense of the kinds of um, impact I want to have in the work that I do. I think I had a consistent theme for, for many years uh, that I want to be in the overlap between technology design and practically speaking, what does it mean for us to think about ethics on top of that? And it has been itching at me as a, as a lifelong homework <laughs> that I haven't finished. And somehow it has really led me to these different opportunities that presented itself. Even, even my work in, um, in working at the UN headquarters was an opportunity that came to me when uh, I didn't expect it at all. Um, and even the, the project that I did with you was not a contract that I had expected. I had reached out to you for mentorship because I wasn't sure, hmm, Catherine, should I launch this uh, nonprofit full-time or do a startup consultancy? <laughs> and you said, why not do both? 
So I think having having mentors like you, who who would ask these questions about, yeah, try both of them. Why not? <laughs> I think that that helped me along the way. That whole description is amazing, and what I see is universally true of people that I'm talking to, is this external motivation, and it comes to people through different means. But that seems to actually help frame the choice of decision and seeing risk as opportunity. That's my current hypothesis at the moment. (laughs) So Dr. Moon, you have extensively published your research and it's been cited in publications um, between 500 and 1,000 times. Seriously, I'm just awed when I Google you. And one of the, the publications or your research that's most cited is a, a paper titled, Meet Me Where I'm Gazing, How Shared Attention and Shared Attention Gaze Affects Human-Robot Handover Timing. Can you tell me about that, that particular research? Sure. Um, perhaps this was another risk that I took without knowing that this was a risk. <laughs> Uh, it's a paper that came out as a, a result of a hackathon project that I, I um, participated in with, I, I believe, about eight uh, or nine different people. And in, in this paper, we were just really curious whether this big new humanoid robot that we just got in the, in, at the Curry's lab at, at UBC, um, if we were to design the robot to act a little bit more human-like, as in when it's trying to hand over a water bottle to you, uh, it would look at different locations in space like a human would as, as they're handing over the water bottle. Would that actually make a difference in people who are trying to receive that water bottle from the robot? So we were, we were just thinking that would such a simple thing such as a gaze behavior as as in where is the robot looking would that make a difference and turns out it did (laughs) it has it it had a significant to tell when the robot will stop moving or when the robot will be finished handing it over to to the person so even before the robot uh, clunkily, you know, uh, reached its hand to stop moving and say, please take the water bottle. It didn't even have that cue. Uh, people would intuitively know when to start to reach out and meet the robot halfway. Uh, so I think that was a really cool study that we've done. We, we uh, launched an experiment with um, over 100 participants that we pulled from UBC Orientation Week. <laughs> Just randomly said, <laughs> Random interact with the robot, get a free street, bottle of yeah. water. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that, that this, uh, this was such a, an impactful work in, in human robot interaction. Um, yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Thanks for asking. This is, this is a lot of fun to, to remember that, that project. Yeah. That's very cool. Okay, my final question to you, Adjung. If you could make anything better on this planet, anything, what would it be? If I could make anything better... <laughs> I think I am working on my, my big homework, uh, which is um, making people be more considerate to one another in small tasks, small decisions. 
my homework, uh, even even more scoped down version of that story would be uh, to try and make sure that when we're designing things, we are being a little bit more thoughtful and considerate to each other. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. I'm not sure how far I can go in my lifetime, but uh, <laughs> that'll be my my gift to the planet. Beautiful. That's fabulous. Ajung, thank you so much for our conversation today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thanks for telling me about the story of what happened um, after our project together as well, because um, there is really lack of documented understanding of whether doing AI ethics has any value. I'm at the quest to think about, is there a value add to AI ethics? (laughs) Because we don't have an answer yet. Dr. Adjung Moon's research and thought leadership can be found on her website, adjungmoon.com, as well as McGill University's site under electrical and computer engineering. You can follow her on LinkedIn and on Twitter at RoboEthics 